How are you guys? Fantastic. Well, since um, <clears throat> uh, since this isn't professional work, but this is actually spiritual work, uh, we need the Lord to come and inhabit uh, our time. And we're going to pray right now and just ask God to, to uh, speak to you through his word and, um, and through me. We need him to do that. Otherwise, it doesn't, it's not going to do anything for you for your life. So uh, we thank you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, uh, again, we just uh, we come before you, God, in desperate need of, of you to come and send your spirit to just richly uh, mediate the presence of your son in the hearts of your people here this morning. God, that they would just clearly hear from you. Um, Lord, I, I would love them to hear how incredibly loved they are by you. I love them to hear the good news as really good news. That you would stir their hearts, Lord. That they would hear just clearly the message that you have for them today. And uh, we know, Lord, that no one is here by accident. That you know every single person in this room better than they know themselves. Um, you know their struggles. Uh, you know their uh, the problems maybe that they're going through. Uh, their anxieties, their fears. Uh, you know right where they are. And uh, so, Holy Spirit, again, we just ask that you would come and minister to the hearts of your people this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as Kevin said, my name is Devin Lorraine. I'm a church planter. This is our second church plant that my wife and I are doing. We were missionaries in Pondery County for 13 years at the Kalispell Indian Reservation um, in the little town of Cusick. Anybody here been to Cusick? Man, we got one. Okay, so it's a little tiny town out in the middle of nowhere is where God kind of had us cut our teeth on ministry. And there we were for about 13 years. We planted Regeneration Church up there and we ministered to people. Um, It was just a beautiful, beautiful uh, time where God uh, worked deeply in my heart and in the hearts of the people of that community. Um, One example, I remember as Amanda and I, uh, we were in camp ministry. Up there, we, we, I was the director of a Bible camp called Riverview Bible Camp, and I was in that ministry for 10 years up there. But God began to break our hearts for the city that was there, the city of Cusick and Usk and the Kalispell Indian Reservation in particular. Um, it was just broken. You could just see it. It was very visible. And um, I remember, uh, so we, we just started meeting the needs of the people, and that's really what the church plant grew out of. But there's just a desperate need for the gospel. So we began to just kind of, we call it meeting needs with loving deeds, right? Diaconal service, serving the people. And we began to serve the people um, any way we possibly could. We were doing outreaches. Uh, we provide, you know, uh, food for people. We provide babysitting for single moms. Uh, I would counsel people that were addicted to drugs. Um, and it was just kind of a ministry. And then out of that really grew the church plant that we did there. Um, one of the examples of just the brokenness of the city that when, where we were um, was there was, a, there was a, a house that had burned down in the middle of the city, this middle of this little town. And it was just left there. Uh, and in that house, three little girls had burned to death. Um, it was a drug house. They were making meth in there. And, uh, and yet, it was just a constant reminder of just the, the brokenness of that place, right? A visible reminder Right there in the middle of the town was the, the ash heap of this burned down house. And kids' clothes like strewn through the mess of the burned ashes. And uh, so we came in 
And uh, we went and got a backhoe, and we just pushed all that junk just right off a cliff off the back of the property. And uh, we began to turn that burned heap of rubbish and ash into a park. Um, and we built a memorial for those three little girls. And, um, and we just began to see God just restore people's hope in that city through service, through serving them. And, and I can say it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that compelled us to do such work. To see the brokenness of the city and to not turn a blind eye from it, as we're going to talk about in a minute, but to engage it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I remember, I'll never forget that the mother of those three little girls, as we called um, to tell her, first to ask for permission if we could, and then for her to show up and see the, the park that was finished, and for her just to weep, saying, I thought God had forgot about my kids. But now I know that he, he didn't forget about me. And just to see the beginning of this, this restoration of this city. So, as I said, we were there for 13 years. And then God has now called us on to a new season of ministry. And we're going to be planting Crossview Community Church in Pasco, Washington. Pasco is uh, one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. Uh, just reached 71,000 people um, within a 10-mile radius of where we are planting. There's a quarter of a million people in the Tri-Cities, 250,000 people. Um, so the population is exploding, but churches are not exploding. So we see this rapid growth of, of people, but um, there's not a rapid growth of congregations. And so there's a need, a desperate need for the gospel to be preached in the city of Pasco. Um, that's where God has called us. Uh, again, it's hard ground. It's hard ground, Pasco is. Um, so I would ask, if I could ask you guys to pray for me for a couple of things, would that be okay? Three things, two things. Uh, one would be, um, there are significant spiritual strongholds in the city of Pasco. There's a lot of cults. It's like 11% Mormonism. Um, a large uh, Catholic population um, that are, are, you know, that has been difficult to reach uh, that, uh, those people. And um, so we need you to pray that the Holy Spirit would go before us and just till the soil of the ground, right? This is spiritual work. Uh, I have a, a, a saying that I always say that when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get people to go and, and to pray for us. To pray that the Holy Spirit would go before us. So pray that God would go before us and start to tear down some of the spiritual strongholds of the city. Okay, that's one. Um, additionally, would you pray that God would lead us to spiritually hungry people? Right? That God would lead us to people that, that want to hear the gospel. That we could preach and teach and disciple in such a way that it would be fruitful. And we would begin to, to see a transformation in the city where we're planting. And then lastly, if you would just pray for the financial uh, part of the church plant, that we would raise the first year budget of the church. And that all would come in. And we're, we're, we're well on the way to that, but I'd just like you guys to pray for me. So those are three ways that you could pray for us. And that is really kind of our story. It's what we're doing. As far as our church plant. Um, 
So if you guys have your Bibles, grab them. I know the text will be up here on the Sky Bible, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. The um, title of the sermon this morning is Three Marks of a Great Church. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I apologize, my voice. I had no voice on Wednesday, and I called Kevin. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach. I have no voice, and so it's just almost back. So I'll do my best. You guys ready? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Those are the words of Jesus Christ, and that's the word of God. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to ask you guys a question to start out, and it's a really good question. This is the question that I'm wrestling with as a church planter. Getting ready to plant a church? The question would be, what is it that makes a great church? What is it that makes a great church? What is it that makes a healthy church? vibrant, life-giving church. You ever thought about that? Most of us probably not necessarily would think of it. Let me ask you another question. Who here wants to be a part of a mediocre, lukewarm church? No hands? Nobody raises their hand to that question. Everybody, everybody wants to be a part of a great church. Right? Yeah? But it's interesting, not everybody wants to play their part in a great church. Uh, Dr. Keller, in his book, Gospel in Life, talks about, he, has a, he says that um, Christians today make very little impact on the world around them. They make very little impact in their places of work. They make very little impact... with their neighbors. They make very little impact in the world. Why is that? What is it that's keeping us from engaging the people? Like, we have a message. We We have the good news. But it ceases to be a message if it never crosses your lips. Right? A message is only a message if you say it. One of the things that I've seen in the church, um, and I've been in the church for a while now, is that something that's, that's, that's crept into the church, one of the reasons why we are not making a great impact in, in the world around us is because of consumerism. Consumerism 
has crept into the church. Let me, let me explain this. Now, if I was to ask you what makes up a great church, you probably would not say um, a church that meets all my needs. You might say something a little more idealistic than that. But if you really listen to what people are saying, when you ask what makes up a great church, they will tell you a church that meets all of my needs. Now, let me ask you, who here likes Costco? Raise your hand if you like Costco. Come on. Or maybe Fred Meyer, Walmart, someplace. Why do you like those stores? Why do we like those stores? Because they have everything you need, right? And there's a lot of stuff you don't need, but you still take it home for some reason anyways. I know I do. Like, I don't know, what little fudge bars and whatever else. You're like, why is this in my cart? But, right? So we love Costco because it meets all of our needs. Now, when we go about assigning greatness to a church, we do it a lot in the same way. And we begin to talk about the preaching. Well, they have a great preacher. Or they have a great worship team. Or they have a great children's ministry. The preacher, he ministers to me me spiritually and intellectually. He, He meets me where I am and I need that and it's good. I like that. And the worship team, man, they're awesome. Emotionally, they just take me there. And I love it. And the children's ministry, they're ministering to my children's needs. And they come out and they're all obedient. And they do what I say. And it's amazing what they're doing with my kids in there. They're meeting my kids' needs. It's meeting my needs. And then we go about assigning greatness to a church solely based on how it meets your needs. Now, there's a problem with that. You know what it is? Right? The Bible and Jesus Christ never assign greatness to a church that way. And I think that there's a great need to return back to the way God actually assigns greatness and health to a church. And if we don't do this, I think we will largely miss the heart of God. We're not to be transformed by a consumeristic culture that says it's all about you. But we're supposed to transform culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today, in our time together, I'd like to consider... A few ways the scriptures define the greatness of a church. A healthy, vibrant, life-giving church. The first way we know a church is a healthy, great church. When Jesus Christ is the first priority of that church. Amen? Kind of important. Secondly, a church is a healthy church. A great church. When the church is motivated by the gospel. That's your motivation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And then lastly, a church is a great church when it begins to transform the city in which God put them. Amen? Amen. First point then. A church is a healthy, great church. When Jesus Christ is the first priority of the church. So a church is healthy. It's life-giving. When Jesus Christ is in the church. Is that a fair statement? Jesus kind of needs to be there in the church, right? God says that he will pour out his spirit with power on a people who exalt Christ. 
It is God's purpose to empower his people over and over and over again with extraordinary outpourings of his spirit on a people until all of the peoples of the world have heard the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what he's doing in the world. So on one hand, we know that God is omnipresent, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that God is omnipresent? Right? He's everywhere all the time. But we also know that God will not manifest his presence at all times and all places in every church in America this morning. Every church in America this morning is not experiencing a supernatural outpouring of God's spirit on the people. You ever been in a church where they're talking about God, but you just sense God is not there? You ever been in a church like that? Anybody? Really? It's biblical. It's biblical. What comes to mind when you think of the word revival? Don't put that up yet. <laughs> give away that. I don't want to give it away. Right? Don't you think about it. Right? What comes to mind when you think of the word revival? <clears throat> Billy, Graham. Billy Graham. Yeah, for sure. Good. Tent. I think tent too. For some reason, I think fried chicken. I don't know. It's just like potlucks. <laughs> Right? Good food, sweating for some reason. I think no air conditioning. It's going to be hot. It's going to be sweaty. It's going to be long. You know, some passionate preacher just kind of going for it four or five nights in a row till late in the night praying. Revival, right? And what we think of, right? This is actually the, the, the definition of revival. The overwhelming, tangible presence of God manifesting or resting on a people. It's God literally pouring out his spirit on a people, on a church body. You ever been a part of a revival? Anybody here? Got one brother back there. My wife and I were part of a mini revival in Spokane Valley, the church we got saved at. God just poured out his spirit. People were getting saved. Like a hundred people got saved in like a couple of months. It was just boom, boom, boom. Every week, people were just raising their hands. And it wasn't just people just saying a prayer. It was like people's lives being radically transformed by the gospel. It was revival. Like God just poured out his spirit. Boom. And I could tell you the day that I got saved, the day that I walked into that church, I did not even want to be there. I didn't want to be there, but I walked in and the presence of God was so thick in that place. I began to weep and they hadn't even said anything. I was like, what's wrong with my face? Why am I crying? Man up. Quit it, eyes. Stop doing that. I didn't even know. And then by the time the guy started preaching, the Holy Spirit was so at work in my heart. And there was like 10 other people that were in the same condition as me. By the time the guy said, does anybody want Jesus? I could not stand up fast enough. I was like, me, it's me. 
That's me. I didn't want to be there. God just rescued me. The Spirit of God was just there. Jesus says in the text that we just read that we will never experience that if he is not preeminent in our church. We will never experience the supernatural outpouring of God's spirit resting on a people and the people out there walking in here and just going, God is here. Unless God, unless Jesus Christ is first. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building, a time, an event, or a place, or even the leadership, your dear brother up here and his wife. I'm talking about the individual people in the body of Christ. You're the church. Putting Jesus Christ first in your life. You are number one, Jesus. It's about you. It's not about me. You watch God pour out his spirit on a people who put Jesus Christ first. Amen. Do you know how easy it is for a church to not put Jesus first? Like, that's what he said. Jesus says, man, you guys are doing good stuff. Like, preaching good, preaching the word and, and worship. Yes. We want to sing praises to the Lord and we want people to help teach our children and children's ministry. These are all good things, but they're not the number one thing. Jesus says, return to your first love. Let's read it again. Revelation two. This time I pray that it's just life giving for you. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know the good stuff that you're doing. I know you can't bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The seven golden lampstands are churches. They were real places. Real, actual churches. Jesus says, I'm walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of the church. He sees what we're doing. And he sees our hearts. Man looks at the outward appearance. God actually looks at our hearts. Jesus sees the intentions of the things that we're doing. Why are we doing the stuff that we're doing? He tells them the stuff they're doing well. He tells them the stuff that they are not doing so well. In Ephesus, they were doing some great things. But Jesus wasn't a part of it anymore. 
What do you think about that? It's sad to me. Think of a church doing all of the church stuff, but Jesus isn't really a part of it. That is a sobering thought. So a great church is a healthy church as a church where the individual people in the body of Christ are repenting from their idolatry and they're turning to Christ as the first most important thing. And God is there. Amen? Amen, church? Amen. All right. Additionally, a great church is motivated by the gospel. And this is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. Hear the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers. This is, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. And this goes right along with what Jesus was saying. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, who is Paul addressing here? Looking at the text. Who is Paul talking to? Believers. He's talking to the brothers. He's talking to the body of Christ. And he's reminding them of what? The gospel. He's reminding the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? You remember that question, Kev? Was that the first question we started with? Right. Jason Williams, that was the first question he laid on me at our assessment. Right out the gate. What's the gospel and how does that work in your life right now? It's a great question. What is the gospel? And how is it at work in your life? I think we all know that it's very important. The gospel, right? It's very important. I think we know that it's the centerpiece, right, of the Christian faith. But I also think... That if we are honest, we don't really understand how the gospel affects our day-to-day life. How does the gospel affect what I'm doing right now? Uh, Jonathan Dodson wrote a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. It's a great book. Recommend it highly. And he talks about how we often think of the gospel as like the uh, fuel cell on the back of the space shuttle. And it ignites... And it launches you into orbit as the gospel like ignites and launches you into the kingdom of God. And then like the fuel cell on the back of the space shuttle, it just kind of pops off once you reach orbit and it falls back to the ground. Jonathan goes on to say that the gospel is not like that. You do not move on past the gospel into deeper theology. Right? God actually moves you deeper into the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't pop off. The gospel is not just the power to get you into the kingdom. The gospel keeps you in. 
It keeps you going and it keeps you growing. It's not like a fiery fuel cell that pops off. The gospel is like an internal motor, like an engine that burns hotter and hotter and hotter. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. Additionally, the gospel is not a command to do anything. It is good news. Have you ever, you ever, anybody handed you like a list of stuff you needed to do and you thought, huh, that's good news. Is a list of do's and don'ts good news to you? Huh. Not, not necessarily, right? Not usually, anyways. It's not a command, but it does demand a response. The gospel is primarily not a story about us. It is a story about God and about what he has done. The gospel is a story about God and about what he has done. How God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, has completely accomplished salvation for all of those who will believe in Jesus by faith. In his death, in his resurrection. Originally, uh, Dr. Martin Lowe Jones has kind of a nuanced understanding of the gospel, which I love. Uh, he explains that the word gospel originally wasn't a Christian word. Did you know that? That it was a, a Roman word. It was used in the Roman world. And they took it. The early church Christians took the word gospel to really sum up the central meaning of Christianity. It's good news. But originally, the word gospel, it had this idea that it was... Um, good news that was so profound that it literally changed the life of the person who heard it. The gospel is life-altering good news. It radically changes the people who heard the good news. That's why they took that word, gospel. John Mark took it from the early first Christians uh, to write the very first gospel, the gospel of Mark. So this word gospel, historically, it was when a king would ride into battle for the salvation of his people. He would take his army out to the battlefield and they're going to fight for the freedom of their people. Now, if the king lost this battle, he would immediately send generals into the cities to tell the people the king is lost. The battle is upon you now. You're going to need to fight for your life. You're going to need to do all that you can to survive because we lost the battle and now your life is in your own hands. That is essentially the message of religion. Do all you can. Fight for all of your life. And if you work hard enough, long enough, maybe you'll be saved. Well, on the other hand, if the king won the battle, he wouldn't send generals into the cities But he would send messengers. And these messengers were called the evangels. It's where we get our word evangelist, the carrier of the good news. This is just purely the historical meaning of the word. The evangelist would carry the good news of the gospel into the cities to tell the people that the king has won the battle and that you've been set free. They would proclaim it. 
As they were riding through, they're heralding the good news. You're free. You're free. You've been set free. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's our story. That's your story. That our great God and King Jesus Christ has won the battle. That he has set you free. Free from the bondage of sin and death and hell. Let me put it a different way. Let's put yourself in the first century. Just imagine. And there you are in front of your little hut or whatever. You got your, your wife, your kids, your aunt, aunts and uncles. Your whole family's there. And you know the king is out there fighting for your freedom. And you're waiting to see what's going to happen. Am I going to die? Or am I going to live? And then coming around the corner, it's not the general, but it's the evangelist. And he rides by you and he's telling you that you have been set free. What's your response to that? Hallelujah. Let me show you. Yes! I was going to die and now I'm going to live. That is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lest we forget. You see, you were an outsider. And you've been brought near by the death of Christ. You were an orphaned child. And now you are dearly loved of the Father. Because of Jesus Christ. You were an enemy of God. And now because of Christ. You are God's friend. Do you understand. What has happened. Because of the gospel. You were dead. In your sins. And your trespasses. Not partially dead. Not a little dead. But completely dead. And now you've been rescued. Because of Jesus Christ. Do you see how profound that is. Brothers and sisters, please tell me you see how profound that is. The angels are longing to look into the gospel. When Jesus Christ returns, your eschatology, your your, your understanding of end times will be completely understood as Jesus returns. But the gospel will be a mystery to you forever. You'll never get to the bottom of it. It is more profound than you could possibly ever imagine. That God would send his son. That he would become a man and take on flesh and live for you and die for you. To rescue a people for his glory, through his obedience, through his blood. You have been rescued at no cost of your own. He did that for you. For God's glory. And for the good of all people. That is profound. That is the gospel. Let's don't go grow uh, weary of hearing the truth of God's word. It is profound. It is deep. I think of Solomon in all of his wisdom. The God-giving wisdom that, that God gave him. And yet he says in Ecclesiastes 7, wisdom escapes me. It's deep. It is so deep. I don't have it. 
It's Jesus Christ himself that he did not have. It was so profound. It was so deep. The wisest man who ever lived lived, was grasping at it, but he couldn't get it. You have it. You have all wisdom and all power and all glory is in Christ. And he's yours. Dear loved ones, I just want you to hear how incredibly loved you are in Christ. There was this this covenant between Jesus Christ and the Father in eternity past where they made a covenant with each other to say that they are going to save a people for God's glory. And Jesus cried out from the cross, it's finished. I did it. I completely fulfilled the covenant of redemption. God, your people are rescued. It's done. So the work of salvation is done. But now the battle is for your mind. The battle is for your mind. To believe everything that I just said. We have like, like gospel amnesia. We're amnesiacs. We just forget. I'm a dearly loved child of God. I have a place at his seat. And he says, with you I am well pleased. Because you are in my son. And we just, we just forget. And we just move on. That's why we need community so bad. Because we need other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and tell you just that. You are loved by God. Not because of what you have done, but because Jesus Christ lived for you perfectly, fulfilling all of God's righteous demands. All of the law he fulfilled in your place. And then died and imputed all of that righteousness to you. Now in Christ, the father sees you as he sees his own son. Is that good news? Someone give me an amen. All right. Now, it's all grace. I just want you to hear that. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's God's unmerited love. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Eternity grace for you in Christ. That's why we can enter into that rest. Now, lastly, does that motivate you? That is the central motivation. Okay, so the law, the law is good. Because it, it shows us where we need to go and what to do. It's like a train track. But there's no power in the law to get you to do what it's asking you. There's no, there's no power in the commands of God. The power of God is the gospel. It is your motor. It is what will compel you to love to serve God rather than begrudging obedience. I must do this because so much performance equals God will love me. And so much disobedience equals God doesn't like me. But it doesn't work that way. If you are God's child, there is never a time where you will not be his child. Ever. Think about your own kids. If your kid was struggling, are you going to be like, bah, get out of my face? 
Can't believe you did that again. Or do you pursue your kids? If anything, you're more of a father when your kids are struggling. Is that right? How much more so with your father in heaven who actually knows how to love? God is pursuing you. He loves you desperately. Lastly, a church is a great church when it becomes an agent of change in the city. Okay? Motivated by what I just told you. Motivated by the truth of the gospel. We become an agent of change in the city. Did you know that cities are not man's idea? They're not, they're not an accident. They didn't just happen. The cities are actually God's idea. The city. Cities in general. It's God's plan. It's his idea. Cities were to be a place of refuge. Cities were to be a place of safety. A place of commerce. A place of culture. A place of, of multi-ethnic people living together. But because of sin, cities have become a, a wicked place, right? Would you say that's true? Be, be where they were supposed to be, you know, um, a multi-ethnic city now um, has violence and racism because of sin. Where they used to be, a, a, they should have been a place of safety and refuge. They're now dangerous. So if that's, if that's the case, if cities can now be a wicked place, what do we do as Christians? Yeah. You see, that's interesting because that's what the false prophets said in Jeremiah. Move away. Do we just turn a blind eye of the brokenness? Knowing that you were so desperately broken yourself. And for no other reason than God's good purpose, he rescued you. Do we just say, meh, yeah, it's broken. Or do we engage it? Do we engage our city? Turn with me to Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 8. Hear the word of God. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. So it's basically saying just live live life, right? Live life. Increase in number, don't decrease. Verse 7, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So is God's desire not for us to leave the cities? Not to ignore the cities and turn a blind eye? Is God's desire to not just use the city for your own gain? I was convicted by that. But to pray for your city. To pray for its prosperity. And you too will prosper. It's interesting because there was false prophets 
that were telling them, don't engage the city. Move out of the city. Stay as far from the city as you possibly can. And this is interesting because we're talking about Babylon. These are wicked people. This is a wicked place. They came into Jerusalem. They laid waste to the southern kingdom. And they took all of their like 20, you know, 19, 20, 25 year old men. They took them. Boom. Into captivity. And God says, pray for the city. Engage the city. Don't be transformed by the city that you live in. Right? Like we talked about, the, this consumeristic culture. We go about assigning greatness to a church based on how it meets my needs, like Costco. But actually, engage the city. Pray for it. Care for it. Love it. Love the people there. Engage your neighbors, the schools, your workplaces. It's remaining distinctly Christian in a non-Christian environment. Because that's where you are. We are like exiles. It's not necessarily even about getting everybody to come in here. Because you know what the truth is? Most of the people out there don't give a rip about what you're doing in here. I've come to find out. Like I, when I first planted, I thought everybody in the city is going to be in here. It's going to be great. Uh-uh. <laughs> they don't care. So how do we, so what do we do? We have to bring the gospel to them. So like I talked to my, my, uh, my core group, you know, I say it's not about, it's not about addition. It's not about you doing a bunch of extra stuff. It's about doing the stuff that you do right now already with gospel intentionality. What are you doing? You eat. Eat with your neighbors. They'll think you're crazy at first, but do it. Invite them over. You know, Amanda and I, we just did our first. Uh, so we, we have basically gospel communities, what we call them. But they're, they're little home groups where we, we live together in community uh, during the week. And um, it's messy. It's not easy tell you that we're all broken but we we uh we invited our whole neighborhood to come to our front lawn <laughs> and do a movie night like so i have like this stand of stuff for the church plant so we set up the big big projector on my front lawn we don't have a big front lawn but we set it up out there and we had like 30 of our neighbors show up and uh they were all you know what is amazing about that is that uh, we didn't know what to expect because we're kind of new in the neighborhood but they were like, man, this is amazing. These are not Christian people. They're like, this is amazing. I, we love the thought of community. We love doing this. We should do this. Let's do this every weekend. I'm like, no, that's a little too much. We can't do it every weekend. They were, they were excited about it. And, and out of that, that little act of saying like, let's, let's bring the gospel somehow. We need to build relationships with these, with these neighbors, with these people. Right? God, is, God did not call you to go to church. He's, he's called us to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to do unto the ends of the earth. I will be with you. God, this is what Jesus Christ is calling us to. So how, we, how do we do that? We, have, we need to make relationships with people. And it was amazing. So out of that, my neighbor across the street who flat out said, I don't believe in God. But now I'm meeting you guys. Maybe God has me here. And I thought that was funny. 
doesn't believe in God, but now maybe God has her here. And then she just asked me, what, you know, how did you come to know God? And I got to share my testimony with her. And then she was at my house yesterday. She just came over and had a cup of coffee. Like, I see God's pursuing my neighbor across the street, her and her husband. Never known the Lord. Don't know anything about it. And then my neighbor's next door, completely broken. And her daughter, who's like in her 30s, comes over. She just says, can you just pray for me? I'm so addicted to drugs. I just need help. And when Amanda and I just laid hands on her and prayed for her, she just shaked. She was shaking and weeping. That happened just because we did a movie night in our front lawn. Handed out some hot dogs. It wasn't a big deal, but God uses it. How are we going to engage our city? You, you heard the truth. It's the truth about you. You were desperately broken. And God, in his grace, just reached out and said, you're mine. You're my child. And it's grace. These people need that, man. They need it. So, a great church is a church that Jesus says, repent. That we turn from our sin of idolatry, of making it all about us. And we put Jesus Christ first. You're worthy. You're the one who's placed every star in its place. You've created the universe and all that is in it. You know me intimately and every person in this room, Lord. You are worthy of all of our praise. We put him first. The individual people in the body of Christ. And then the gospel. They're inseparable. We're motivated by the truth of who you really are. You know that the church, I'm going to wrap it up. The church should be a bunch of fighters. A bunch of fighters. All of you guys. Fighting for your identity in Christ. Fighting to believe the gospel. The the pursuit of Christ, if you're drifting in that, you never drift into a deep, great relationship with God. Ever. It's something that has to be aggressively pursued. You have to go after it. You have to go after holiness. Putting Christ first. Something that we need to do. So, we repent of our sin. We put Christ first in our lives. We're motivated by the truth of who we are. We're fighting to believe this reality of who we are in Christ. We're a bunch of fighters. And then we go out into our city with that truth. It's a great church. There's a church in, 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 in antiquity, not too long ago, but 1850. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church, London Tabernacle, 1850. This was a church like that. If somebody was going to ask me, like, what, what kind of church would you model your church after? I'd like to model my church after that church. It's amazing the stuff that he did besides preaching to thousands of people with no microphone, just booming away about the blood of Christ. Listen to the work they did in their city. 
they built a dozen low-income houses for residents where people could live to next to nothing until they can get on their feet. Before they built those, there was only one in the whole city of London. They built a dozen of them. A dozen, like, hut houses for people in the city. They built 17 fully funded homes for the elderly. 17. They built a school for orphans. They housed and educated over 400 homeless orphan children at a time. They started a ministry that provided theological books and educated poor rural pastors. They began a ministry that housed and clothed and equipped single mothers and their children. Nobody was doing that. They started an organization that equipped and trained businessmen to go into the city and use their businesses to expand the kingdom of God. That is an example of a church who, compelled by the gospel, began to, to transform their city. Would you want to be a part of that church? Yeah. Because that's a great church. I want to be a part of that church. Let's pray. Father God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that it is your grace and your mercy that uh, I'd be able to stand here and share the truth of your great love with your people. I pray, Lord, um, as I just think about all of my many words, that if there was anything that was not of you, Lord, um, that it would just fall to the floor, that it wouldn't be anything that would be taken to heart, God, minister in that way. Uh, compel us, Lord. We are desperate for you, Lord. We we need your help. Uh, as the song that we sung, we, we need you to help us to be courageous. Time is running short, Lord. Help us to live on the razor's edge of knowing how limited our time is. We only have just a few short years, Lord, to to make our, our mark or to leave a, a legacy for your glory here. Help us to live each day for you, Father. Let me thank you for this, Lord. You are so incredibly good. We cry out to you. We cry out to you right now, God. Hear the cries of our hearts, Lord. Those of us who have wandered, those of us who are adrift, in the sea of our our idolatry, of worshiping all of these lesser gods, the God of comfort. Help us, Lord. We need your help. And we, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.